Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Jesus said, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, if you could look over at Matthew chapter 25, the gospel reading that Jonah just read a second ago. Um, we're, this, this week and next week are the last uh, Sundays of the church year, so we're getting near to the end of the story of the Bible. And so this Sunday, I want to talk about uh, the second coming of Jesus, and the next Sunday, I want to talk about the new creation and what that means for us now. So let's talk this week about the second coming of Jesus, which he describes here in this parable. Jesus uh, became a human being on the first Christmas. He lived uh, the life that we should have lived. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to his father. Uh, But he promises that he's going to return. Hebrews 9.28 says, the writer of Hebrews says, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is going to come back, the Bible teaches. If I can just for a second, and this is not the point of the sermon at all, but but I I feel like a burden to, to try and say, why would he leave? Maybe some of you are asking that question. Why would he leave in the first place if he was already here? And the answer in the Bible is so that he could pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. This is super important. Jesus says this himself in the Gospel of John. He says to his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Sort of counterintuitive. Like, why, why should, shouldn't he just stay here? Like, if he's the Lord of the universe now. No, he, he, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he means the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And I'm gonna make this real short. This is actually a whole sermon, maybe a whole sermon series. I'll try and do this real short though. When Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ comes to every believer, to every believing community. And that means, in, in, in the, the way the Bible describes it, the New Testament describes it, that Jesus is present wherever his people are. If two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I am present there. Jesus, on earth, was in one physical location. He's omniscient, all-powerful, but he's a human being. He lived in Galilee and every once in a while went down to Jerusalem. Now, though, Jesus is everywhere all over the world by the power of the Holy Spirit who communicates Jesus to his people. So he goes away so that he can conquer the whole world. Remember, the goal isn't just to convert his friends and the people around him, but the goal is Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. In order to do that, Christ makes himself present through the presence of his Holy Spirit. All right, in that little explanation, we'll talk more about that later if you feel like it. That brings us to the parable of the talents, which Jesus describes his going away and his second coming and encourages us in what we should be thinking and doing and believing uh, while he's not here. Now, one quick programming note. The word talent here is we're gonna say the word talent here in the text. Talent is, like that's the, 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 the way that it's usually used in English. A talent is something that you're good at. It's a skill that you have. Um, Talent, though, it's not its original meaning. Its original meaning is a weight, and um, it was used to weigh money. And so here, a talent is, we're not sure, we don't know what the, what the metal was that, that was weighed, probably silver, but it's a weight, it's a unit of money. It's like a certain poundage of silver. After 2,000 years of Christian pastors and teaching, teachers teaching this text, talent became sort of a, like a metaphor for what God gives us to use. And so like the skills that we have, we started calling them, you know, so the way it worked was, and you can hear it like, uh, you, you've heard a million sermons like this. God gave his servants, the master gave his servants talents in this text to, to use. God gives you talents too. Like some of you are good at different things. And over the course of time, that turned into a dead metaphor. Now we just use the word talents to mean stuff we're good at, although that's not its original meaning. So when I'm t talking about talents here, it's, it's much broader than just stuff that you're good at. It is, literally means money here, but it can mean your relationships. It can mean things that you're good at, skills that you have. So it's much bigger. Okay, that's the programming note, and now we can get into the sermon. What does the second coming of Jesus, how is it that we should think about that, and what should we be, how should we be living in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return? I'm gonna give us three things this morning from the text. And the first thing is this, is that our lives should be run not by rules, but by creativity. Instead of rules, creativity. Look at verses 14 through 15. Jesus says, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. The master here in the story doesn't tell his servants what to do with it. He entrusts them with a certain amount of money and says, make it grow, and I'll come back. But he doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm gonna give each one of you like a checklist of stuff that I want you to do with what I'm giving you. Here's the rules, you need to learn the rules, you need to learn the techniques. He gives them the money based upon 
it's, it's just, it's, it's fiction, right, what Jesus is saying, but based upon, apparently based upon how they've proved themselves prior, each according to his ability, it says in verse 15, and then he doesn't give any directions, he just goes and he expects them to take that and to use it. Jesus, look, the Christian life is less about rules and it's more about creativity. Holy Spirit empowered creativity. I'm going to quote from the, uh, the Tao Te Ching, which Christian pastors don't normally do, but I'm going to do it today. It's the sacred text of uh, Taoism. But there's, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, one, of it, one of the sayings in the Tao Te Ching is this. For those who don't have the Tao, the rules are necessary. Like if you don't know, so forget Taoism for a second. If you don't know Jesus, if you, if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, then if you don't have the person of the Holy Spirit, then the rules are necessary. But if you do, if the Spirit of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit has been given to us, Jesus doesn't give you a whole lot of rules. He just says, go be creative. Now, some of you have noticed this, and it's been a struggle. Well, like, well, how does the Bible tell me who I should get married to? Or whether I should, like, take this new job offer and leave my other job, or whether I should move to a different house. How does the Bible help, help me with that? And the answer is, is you're looking at the Bible the wrong way. The Bible is what conveys to us the, the Holy Spirit. We, 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 we grow in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible, and then there's just a whole lot of creativity after that. Whatever you want to do. There's some basic rules. Remember the, remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder, don't steal. There's some basic rules. But by and large, you are free with the power of the Holy Spirit to freelance, to make all kinds of decisions that you think is best, decisions that, that, that appeal to you and your particular personality, to you and your family's needs, to just do whatever it is that you want to do within the bounds of the, you know, the basic rules, the Ten Commandments. Just for, don't stress about it. Just, God gives you all kinds of freedom. In that sense, Christianity is way more like jazz than it is like classical music. Are, are, are there rules when you play jazz? Yeah, I mean, if you're playing in a jazz combo, you can't play a completely different song. There's a certain tempo that everybody else is playing. But within those rules, you just kind of do what feels good. You kind of do what you think is right. Within the basic rules of Christianity, know and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, do what you want. In that sense, it's more like it's, it's, Emmett and Wild style are closer to the truth than Lord business. For those of you who have ears to hear, uh, let you hear. There's something about just taking what God has given you and running with it that gives him deep pleasure and delight. How can we know God's wills for our lives? Do what he tells you to do, the basic stuff that's knowable in his word, Pray for guidance, trust in him, and then just know he's going to direct your path as you step out and use the gifts that he's given to you. Instead of rules, creativity. Second thing, instead of hoarding investment. So, I mean, this is kind of the main, main thrust of the story, right? You got the first two guys is in verses 16 and 17. He would receive the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents, made two talents more uh, ostensibly through trading, uh, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. The payout for him, the guy who had the uh, uh, more details here, verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, etc. So I was afraid and I went, your, went and hid your talent in the ground. 
I know that's weird. Hiding money in the ground is not, it's not the thing to do. In the ancient world, it was one option. I mean, there were banks. Um, a little bit risky. You can, you can go on eBay and... Uh, if you go on eBay, look up like Roman coins and you can find like people will sell you chunks of Roman coins that are all dirty and kind of clotted up. What happens is, is people bury their money during, during the Roman Empire. People would bury their money in the ground for safety. You know, there's no Edward Jones and things like that. You'd bury your money for safety and then sometimes stuff would happen. You'd go off to war and not come back or you'd forget where it was or you would keep it there knowing it's safe but you would die and not do a good job of telling people where you had hidden it. People come along with metal detectors now and find chunks of, most of, most of it's not super valuable, but you find chunks of money. People did that. Now, that's sort of a safe play, I guess, to hoard it, to bury it, to cover it up so that you know that you won't lose it. I mean, the goal there is to try not to lose it. But the first two guys, they risk it. They trade it. You know what that means, is they take the money and they give it away, trusting that it will come back more. And that's what God, in light of the second coming, this is what Jesus calls us to do, is not to be hoarders, but to be investors. When we hoard the gifts that God has given us, whether it's money or your things that you're good at or your time or your talents, whatever, when we hoard those things, we kill them off. They lose value. They end up dying off. When we invest them, though, they increase and come back to us. This is one of, the, one of the messages here, right? So some of you have the gift of kindness. I know we're all supposed to be kind. Some of us are really good at it. Some of us struggle with that. Some of us are really, really good at that. That gift has been given to you not to hoard but to invest. In fact, I picked kindness because it's, it's, it's nonsensical that you would hoard that. It doesn't make any sense to be kind and to be good at being kind and to be like, but I don't want to like give that to other people, then it's not really a thing. I mean, you might have the gift of kindness, but if you're not investing it, it doesn't exist. Like your kindness does no good if other people don't experience your kindness. It dies off. But if you invest that gift of kindness, what you do is you create ripple effects of investment where you're kind to people, that makes them kinder, their kindness bounces back to you and increases your kindness, and that sort of thing ripples out in any community. Every community needs people who are good at being kind because it strengthens the whole group. Giving up your kindness to other people actually increases your kindness and increases their kindness. That's my point. Teaching is the same way. Some of, us have a, uh, uh, some of you noticed this. At the, at the beginning of the school year, I prayed for our teachers uh, and, and uh, you know, school administrators, you know, Lutheran schools and public schools in the area, and it took me like a half hour to get through all the names a lot of educators here, and those of you who are teachers know this, you might be good at teaching, but that's the kind of thing you actually have to invest, or it doesn't have any value. You might be good at teaching, you might have some really great degrees, you might keep up on all your annual training, but if you just sit at home by yourself and never teach people, never coach Little League, or never go to school and deal with your students, or never show up at Bible study here and teach, then it doesn't do any good. But if you do, if you invest that gift of teaching like it grows, it makes other people wiser, it builds relationships with other people. You feed back off of that and know this is my gift. I'm gonna actually even work harder and buy in harder to this gift that God has given me. Money's the same way, heard of, this is kind of a Christian truism at this point. 
But if you give money away, it comes back to you. Tons of Christians say this. Tons of you have told me stories about this. If you give money away, it comes back to you. If you hoard money, you lose it. It ends up eating you from the inside out. We are called to invest, not to hoard. So as individuals, think about this. What gift has God given to you that you are actively investing? And if you can't think of anything, this is a good project for this week, is to pray and ask God, like, God, show me what you want me to empty myself out of to others. This is risky. Putting those 10 talents, five talents out there is risky, the risk of losing it. What has God called you to invest in others that you might not get back, but trusting him, if you do, the story says you're gonna get it back. And if you can't think of it, if you're like, well, I don't really do anything. I mean, I have a job, I guess. That's, that's, that's good. That's a way that you can invest is the skills that you have at your job. Then pray and ask God to show you what that is and by the power of his Holy Spirit to lead you into that creatively. I'm not gonna give you rules because Jesus doesn't give you rules about how to invest the talents he gives you. He just says, I'm giving them to you. They're your talents. Go use them. It's us as individuals. As a church, how has God call, called St. James to invest in Glen Carbon. And I know that not all of you are from Glen Carbon, but it is the place where God put our church. Your communities are important too, and you can serve them where you're at. Our church happens to be in Glen Carbon. How has God called us to invest our church in the gifts that he's given to us in Glen Carbon? Many theologically orthodox churches give in to the temptation to hoard. What has God given us? God has given us his word. He's given us his sacrament. He's given us community. Let's kind of hunker down here and just try to keep it going. Just try to make it stay alive. There's churches in this area. There's LCMS churches in this area. One church I can tell you about. uh, uh, Slowly starting to get smaller and smaller. This church went to the district office and asked, hey, we're starting to struggle, we're in trouble here. Like, what can we do to like bounce back and grow? And the district office creates this sort of plan to invest in the community. You need to get out into the community, you need to figure out what are the ways, what are the needs that your town, it wasn't Glen Carbon, what are the needs that your town has that your church can lovingly meet in the name of Jesus? How can you get out there? And the church said, oh, we can't do that. So what, what, what we need are the resources to keep us going. Yes, the resources to keep you going are emptying yourself of your resources, your time and your talents and your money, to invest in your community. That will keep you going. But it's so counterintuitive to the church. Like we, can't, we can't afford to do that. That's too risky. That's too scary. Let's bury the gifts that God gave us. And that church is closed down now. The temptation is to do that. But we, by God's grace, and this is always hard. I'm not, like, I'm not Mr. Like, go pat people on the back. So this is a struggle for me too, but this is one of the things that we've been doing with the ministry clarity process. And on Thursday night, a lot of you were here and discussing this. What, how has God gifted our church uniquely to serve Glen Carbon? And there's a million different ways that this can happen. Be in tune for those. Be creative about those two. These are, there's no rules in the Bible that say you have to start a meals program for underserved kids at the school. There's, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say it would be a good idea to help out with the Easter egg hunt that the village has in Easter. It doesn't say that. So what do you do? You be creative and you just say, let's go for it. Let's go for it. And let's trust that if we invest, that God will grow us back. All right, time for the, the third and last point. Some of you have been uh, thinking here 
And it's, it's a good thought. This is very, very kind of works-ish. You've been talking, Aaron, a lot about what we need to be doing. And where's the gospel in all of this? How does the gospel figure into this? This is very, smells like, it could be sort of like, we need to do stuff, and when we do stuff, God will reward us. Well, uh, here's the gospel in this, and uh, take a, a few minutes of explaining this. But the third point is this. So instead of rules, creativity, instead of hoarding investment, and then finally, instead of fear, faith, related to that, instead of resentment, joy. Instead of fear, faith, and instead of resentment, joy. And it works like this. Let's talk about for a minute what motivates the two investors, the two creative investors, versus the legalistic hoarder. What, what's their different motivation? So first of all, the two guys here, it comes out in, in the way that the master responds to them in verses 21 and 23. They both say, hey, we, we, we went for it. In your name, we invested this. It's your talents. We invested it for you. And the master responds both in verses 21 and 23. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Come and experience the joy that I have for you. That the joy of your master is, you guys make me happy. And I want you to come and experience that. This has been their motivation, is the joy of their master. Not making more talents, because it's not their talents anyway. Although, this is a good time to stop and say, to ask whose talents are they? They're God's talents, right? But God says, here, have five more. Are they God's talents or are they our talents? And the answer is, is yes. They're God's first and foremost because they come from him through us and back to him, but he gives them to us to enjoy. They're motivated, though, by that enjoyment. They're motivated by the fact that the master takes pleasure in them. The master likes them. The master says, hey, you did a great job. Maybe I'll give you a raise next year. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, enter into my joy. Like, come, I'm back home. Like, live in, in my joy. But look at, what the, look at what the third guy, the, the legalistic hoarder, is motivated by Verses 24 through 25. And this is, I'm gonna have to explain this to you, so pay close, close attention here to these, these verses. He also who had received the one talent, the legalistic hoarder, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. You see what he, see what he says to the master? I knew that you were a hard man. You reaped where you did not sow. I know master, that you're the kind of guy who you make other people work for you, and then you take the credit for it. You're the kind of guy who says, go out there and sow, and then you come along and take all the crops. Do you see what this guy's motivated by? He's motivated by resentment. Motivated is the wrong word because he doesn't really do much. But what, 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 the way that he interacts psychologically and emotionally with the master is, I don't like that guy because he's selfish. I don't like God. He demands all these things. He demands time. He demands me to come and worship him and praise his name. He demands me to suffer for him. He demands me to serve him. And then what do I get? I've got to give him all the praise and the glory. He gets everything. He messes, up, he messes me up sometimes. I put all this investment in and stuff doesn't happen the way I want it to. This view of God as the harsh taskmaster results in two things. Either you think, like any harsh taskmaster, if I just do my job, he will like do good things for me. That's the way 
jobs work. Or deep resentment when you realize that that's not the case. So remember a conversation I had with a, a lady at a previous church that I was at, and she had sent her kids through the day school at the church all the way through, and then her kids don't really turn out at that moment the way she wants to. Part of what I want to say to her is like, nobody's kids turn out the way they want them to. Like, my parents' kids didn't turn out the way they wanted them to. So you just kind of wait and see what God's going to do. But the whole notion, she was, she was actually angry, and she said, I spent all that money, that's what she said, I spent all that money on Lutheran school, and this, this is what happens? So, so is, that how, is that what you think of God? Like, if I just bribe him enough, he'll have to do what I want him to do? Is that what we think of God? This is what the, the legalistic hoarder does. What's the alternative? Just hoard. He's not going to, what's, what's he to me? I mean, I guess he's real. I'll show up to church maybe, but I'm not going to give. I don't get anything back for it. He's motivated by resentment, which leads to fear. I was afraid, so I hid it under the ground. Fear and anger always work together. Fear and anger always work together. He knows he's going to get blown up because he's treated God, and this is by, in the story, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the, the master says to him, you knew that I was like that? It's a, he's repeating back to him the question. He's not saying, I'm like that. He's saying, that was your opinion of me? You thought that I was like gonna take your work and take all the credit for it and leave you out in the cold? Still, you didn't need to bear it. You could have at least invested it and you know, got a savings account and gotten something for it. It ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. He treats God as if God is angry and vengeful and judging, and that's actually what he gets. The first two treat God as a lover, as someone whose delight is my delight. And that's what they get. We call that salvation by faith. It's very important. Salvation by faith, when Lutherans talk about, and other Christians talk about salvation by faith, they don't mean that faith is something you have to offer to God to get back his favor. I'll give you faith, you give me salvation. That's just a version of the legalist according. Faith is knowing and believing that whatever I do, God enjoys me. God passionately loves me. This is, the, this is the message here. Look, this is the most important thing I can say. God loves you guys. And I don't mean that in some generic sense. He thinks that you're fun. He takes deep pleasure in you. I, I have to drag this quote out. I know this is one of my twice a year quotes. Eric Liddell in uh, Chariots of Fire, his sister tells him, hey, stop goofing off with the Olympic running. You're just wasting your time. We're supposed to be missionaries in China. It's a tr true story, Eric Liddell. And Eric Liddell says to her, he says, well, yeah, I know God's called me to be a missionary in China, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, what, what, what's Eric Liddell doing? Is he a legalistic hoarder? No, if he's not, he'd either be in despair or he'd be like, I can't do what I want. I can't do what God has made. I, I've got to go to China. That's the rules. I've got to go do something religious. And then maybe I'll get something at the end of it. That leads to resentment and fear. But instead, he's like, no, God made me fast. God likes it when I run. God likes to watch you run. Some of you, I guess, if you're good at running. Whatever it is that God has given you the gift of, and it could be a million different things. It could be working with money. It could be making food. It could be being the kind person in your friend group. God watches that, and he enjoys it. He loves it. That's salvation by faith, is knowing and believing that that's true. That's really that, the payout of the sermon is, I'm just trying to tell you guys, 
God finds you guys very, very enjoyable for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we mean. So one application, and then I'm going to give you the closing uh, note, and then we'll be done. So one application of this is if we can circle back to the, uh, the, the um, uh, not, uh, not rules but creativity thing. Uh, some of you guys have talked to me about how do I know God's will for my life? I mentioned this earlier. How do I know God's will for my life? And there's a lot of stress. Now, when you come to that question, like, you know, whatever it is, who should I marry or where should I go to college or should I take this job transfer or should I move homes? Whenever you come to questions like that, there's two ways that you can approach it. You can approach it as the legalistic order, and you can say, okay, I know that God is mean. I know that he's this cruel game master, and I know that there's something he wants me to do, but he's not telling me what it is, and I've got to figure it out, and when I don't figure it out, he's going to be like, nope, you screwed that up, and he's going to zap me. He's going to give me a bunch of misery as my bad decisions pay out in misery for myself. That's one way to look at God. That would be the way the legalistic quarter works in him. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who loves you. The other way would be like to say this. I trust in God's deep pleasure in me for the sake of Jesus Christ. I trust that God loves me so much that if I use my creativity, if I use the gifts he's given me, he's not gonna let this get screwed up. That's salvation by faith. I trust that if I don't do the religious thing right now and go to China as a missionary, but I do the thing that I'm good at, I run in the 1924 Olympics, I can't remember which Olympics he ran in, that God is going to take deep pleasure in that. Just go do whatever it is you want. That's what I'm saying. You know why? Not because I've got a, a lot of confidence in our abilities to make good decisions, but I have a ton of confidence, and I hope you do too now, a ton of confidence in our Father's love for us that won't let us screw up when we trust him, that will say, you invest the gifts that you want any way that you want to, and I will grow it. What's the basis of this? Last thing, and we're almost done. What's the basis of this? Is our God, final question, is your God a taker or a giver? Does your God demand that you do things to serve him? Or is your God the kind of God who does things to serve you? Does your God demand that you sacrifice for him and he takes all the pay at the end? Or is your God the kind of God who sacrifices himself for you and gives you all the pay at the end and enjoys it with you? The God of the Bible, the God that we know in Jesus Christ is the God who becomes a human being to come and sacrifice himself for us so that we can be with him, so that we can enter into his joy, so that we can experience his deep and passionate love for you. Believe in that God. Amen.